0: Hello everyone, welcome to this week's podcast. We are off the mat for this episode, so it's just me. Before we begin, I'd like to again request that you be so kind as to donate any amount, uh, regular or, you know, regularly or even just for one time. Some sort of donation towards our efforts here. We have this podcast, we have a YouTube channel. We post regularly on Facebook, and there are countless writings on our website, and all of that information is free, um, but your assistance would be greatly appreciated. We are on Patreon. I'll provide the link in the episode notes, and um, you know, what can I say? I don't want to ever put all this information behind a paywall, uh, but it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of equipment, and all those things come with financial needs. So you'd be helping us out, and thank you. On with the episode. The Dual Substance of Christ The yearning, so human, so superhuman, of a man to attain to God, or more exactly, to return to God and identify himself with Him, has always been a deep, inscrutable mystery to me. This nostalgia for God, at once so mysterious and so real, has opened in me large wounds and also large flowing springs. My principal anguish and the source of all my joys and sorrows from my youth onward has been the incessant, merciless battle between the spirit and the flesh. Within me are the dark immemorial forces of the evil one, human and pre-human. Within me too are the luminous forces, human and pre-human, of God and my soul is the arena where these two armies have clashed and met. The anguish has been intense. I loved my body and did not want it to perish. I loved my soul and did not want it to decay. I have fought to reconcile these two primordial forces which are so contrary to each other to make them realize that they are not enemies but rather fellow workers so that they might rejoice in their harmony and so that I might rejoice with them. Every man partakes of the divine nature of both his spirit and his flesh. That is why the mystery of Christ is not simply a mystery for a particular creed. It is a universal. The struggle between God and man breaks out in everyone, together with the longing for reconciliation. Most often, This struggle is unconscious and short-lived. A weak soul does not have the endurance to resist the flesh for very long. It grows heavy, becomes flesh itself, and the contest ends. But among responsible men, men who keep their eyes riveted day and night upon the supreme duty, the conflict between flesh and spirit breaks out mercilessly and may last until death. The stronger the soul and the flesh, the more fruitful the struggle, and the richer the final harmony. God does not love weak souls and flabby flesh. The spirit wants to have to wrestle with flesh which is strong and full of resistance. It is a carnivorous bird which incessantly, which is incessantly hungry. It eats flesh, and by assimilating it, makes it disappear. Struggle between the flesh and the spirit Rebellion and resistance, reconciliation and submission, and finally, the supreme purpose of the struggle, union with God. This was the ascent taken by Christ, the ascent which he invites us to take as well, following in his bloody tracks. This is the supreme duty of the man who struggles to set out for the lofty peak which Christ, the firstborn son of salvation, attained. How can we begin? If we are to be able to follow him, we must have a profound knowledge of his conflict. We must relive his anguish, his victory over the blossoming snares of the earth, his sacrifice of the great and small joys of men, and his ascent from sacrifice to sacrifice, exploit to exploit, to martyrdom's summit, the cross. These are the opening paragraphs of the prologue to the novel, The Last Temptation of Christ. This is a book I tend to reread probably at least once a year. And this last week, I was watching my deshi train. And more so than any regular listener of the podcast, and even a regular listener of the podcast would know of these things, many of them, most of them, have been trained in the way for over a decade, some for decades. And I was watching this class and it brought back these opening paragraphs. And what in particular brought these paragraphs to my mind was that in despite of all the information and all the training the schedule that allows for the training all the philosophy all the insight all the necessary equipment all the opportunity I see that They will push on what is pushing on them and pull on what is pulling on them. And the ability to do the contrary, I would say, is just the bare bones beginning or the entryway into the into the art. In essence, we're talking about the very foundation of jiu-jitsu, that one does not do those things. Of course, as one's skill matures, that process itself is what comes to be the foundation for the arts internal aspects. such that not pushing on what is pushing on you and not pulling on what is pulling on you is internalized in such a way through such an alchemy that one is not pushable nor pullable That what that what was once considered contrary energy is communing energy, and that is allowed to pass through oneself both to and fro. And this skill itself is intermediary because it, too, is a foundation for another skill. And that skill is the skill of divine communion. The same non contesting strategy, non resisting strategy, and the same skill set that allows energy to pass through oneself, both to and fro, allows the divine to commune with us. And this last skill is so vital to Budo. But it is nothing, not even possible without the intermediary skill, which itself is nothing and not even possible without the entry-level skill. Can I stop pushing on what is pushing on me? Can I stop pulling on what is pulling on me? Can I begin a life and a way of being that is not dichotomous, that is not based in contestation? Can I just stop that? Those questions came to my mind as I was watching this one particular class. Watching my deshi push and pull. Always seeking to overpower, to overcome. Always unconsciously committing struggle This, I think, is something we don't realize that has to be the answer, because any other answer would be a variant on Someone either not knowing but they do know and we all know. Or someone who knows and willfully chooses the other. But that is not us. That is not what is happening. I imagine there are some that go about life constantly, willfully seeking struggle and seeking to overcome others, but people on the path that do that are very few. What happens instead is this kind of unconscious, habitual, unaware participation beyond our control In a way that we are blind to, that has us struggling and contesting, and to great extremes, to the extremes of self sabotage, wherein we destroy our relationships, our careers. our childhood, our parentage, our friendships, our marriages. And no sane person sets out to do that. The way, therefore, is not really geared towards the sociopath. But it is geared towards these sociopathic tendencies in all of us. It is geared towards this unconscious, unaware blind participation in contestation, in dichotomy, in will to power, and in the generating of suffering simultaneously both within us and outside of us. This is the struggle. The struggle, perhaps its first steps, is to see that we do this and we do this unaware. In past episodes, when I talk about a metacognition, how important that is as a first step in spiritual training. It is particularly aimed at this. We have to first be able to see that we're struggling. That we're contesting. that we're seeking to overpower, that we are living dichotomously. On the mat, we have to be able to see that Uke's push triggers my push and Uke's pull triggers my pull. If we remain unaware of that all hope is lost. The path has ended. We are not on it. In these paragraphs the author kind of echoes something that we even see in a motokyo. Osensei's religion. A dichotomy is drawn between the spirit and the flesh. And his goal, the goal that he lays out, the goal that he sees in the life of Christ and in the stories of Christ is the same goal that we talked about in a recent podcast on the life-giving sword and the death-bringing sword. The goal is that I am in a midst struggle, that when I get to the way my spirit and my flesh. Parts of me, that I am parts, are in some sort of combat with each other. But my goal is to seek integration. He says, to make them realize that they are not enemies, but rather fellow workers, so that they might rejoice in their harmony and so that I might rejoice with them. In other episodes, I've talked about shuhadi, and how di is that moment of rejoice, of harmony the reconciliation of form and non-form, the integration of the ego tripartite and the God consciousness. This is key because why I think so many of us continue training pushing on pushing, pulling on pulling, is because at the very heart of why we train, the very heart of how we understand the way, is itself dichotomous. For example, there is the dichotomy between our old self and the self we are as we train. Or the dichotomy between the self as we are, as we train, and the self we want to become. Sometimes it goes right back to the beginning. on why we started training or why we started training in Aikido or why we looked as Westerners to the Eastern ways. At some level, there's some sort of rejection. And that rejection can only take place through dichotomy. And dichotomy gives birth to dichotomy. And there's no escape from this mode of thinking and this mode of experience. And so the way itself, the training itself remains dichotomous. It is, as I say, the training has been usurped by the ego tripartite, wherein all it does is provide repetitions and thus skill in and at dichotomy. I'm currently about to finish a book. I'll post it in the episode notes and I'll recommend it with links to purchasing it through Amazon on our Facebook page. It's called Zen Confidential. And if you've read it before, I ask you to uh, look at it through this lens. I don't think his experience is all that different from how many of us come to Aikido in the United States. So he, the author, is raised in his own words in a Catholic, politically conservative household. And then through the lens of this prologue, he enters into the battle between his spirit and his flesh. He takes on unaware, unknowingly, without understanding why a dichotomous worldview. And he comes to see his Catholicism and his parents' conservative political views as something to be contested. They push and pull on him and he pushes and pulls on them back. he enters into contest. In his own words, he kind of rejects and rebels them, rebels against them. Growing up somewhere in the middle of the country, he goes to Again, it's opposite. He goes to L.A., to Hollywood. And again, maybe not his view, but sociologically, this is what a lot of people do in the United States. It's, it hollywood offers to them some sort of freedom some sort of victory i imagine the reason for that is extremely a, is an extremely deep one maybe related to some dichotomous result of not feeling loved and the delusion that fame will ease one's pain, maybe some unconscious need for narratives combined with some will to power to control the narratives. And most likely, and most definitely, and even as he described it, just to get away from all the rules, to stop saying no. And so he lives that life for a while. And like a lot of people do, especially those who did come from some sort of workable base. Some sort of childhood not so plagued by the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences. You kind of mature a little bit, and you realize, oh, this life of uh, yes isn't really doing it for me anymore. In fact, I think it might be doing some harm. I don't feel so good. The people around me don't look so good. Something's missing. I don't feel the depth. I feel lost. I feel loose. I feel like I'm being spread thin. Meaninglessness is setting in and I'm terrified. The drugs aren't doing it anymore. They're not numbing me anymore. I think they're going to kill me. you 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 muster up just enough awareness but not enough awareness to see that your drive there was based upon a dichotomy that you yourself created or accepted or adopted And so you can't go backwards though. You can't go back to conservative values or to Catholicism. So you go to something else. Something that is still in dichotomy with the latter but is not of this other lifestyle you know is not working. So in his own words, he goes to Zen. And a lot of moderns go to Zen. And there's a historical reason for this. In a quick nutshell... the Catholic Church for centuries or centuries prior to today started to bring in reason. People like Aquinas were going to prove through reason what was known through faith. And this opened the door to talk about religious things reasonably. Political systems arose and contested each other and the church's discourse was now open to debate and eventually economic power bases shifted and reason was there because it was let in by the church to displace the church. Fast forward a few centuries. Japan goes to war. It has its imperial, colonial Discourses. Shinto and Buddhism were part of that, including Zen. Japan loses the war. And cultures that had already had a discourse of reason and a displacement of religious institutions saw a justification for who they were and what they did in their own culture. In how Japan used Shinto and Buddhism to wage and commit military atrocities and world war. In response to that defeat Zen lay people, academics emphasized and created its kind of anti-religious identity. Some key figures here are Alan Watts, D.T. Suzuki, and the West as these authors were finding and working through their own adolescent rebellion, their own dichotomy. Perhaps Suzuki as a way of not going back to the days of World War II. And perhaps Watts, like any Westerner, struggling dichotomously against the rule of Christianity and conservative parentage. For those reasons, and perhaps more, it was presented to the rest of the United States as an alternative. This vein has continued on with the popularity of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, etc. Where today, Buddhism is... Regarbed, masqueraded as a kind of ancient psychology. A fascinating book on this is titled Why I'm Not a Buddhist. I'll post a link to that in the episode notes as well. And so today you have Buddhism that uh, really spends a lot of time trying to validate itself through modern science. So there'll be ties constantly to physics or to evolution or to psychology. And so people adopt these practices but in their adoption the dichotomy comes with it. And therein is the ego tripartite. And therein is the usurping of the practice itself. It is doomed from the start. So you go to Zen, and it becomes key. as you learn what it is, that in every way, it never refers to God, to faith, to mystery, to Christ. But you don't see the dichotomy at work therein. And so you don't see the delusion or the will to power or the resistance or the contestation. You don't recognize the dogmatic thinking in you. And by extension, you don't recognize that when you're doing your daily practices as in the class that I was observing. Meaning you don't see your problems with the hierarchy in the Zen monastery with people, with personalities, with the workload, with the poverty, with the weather, with the ritual, with the routine. And so you contest against these things. They push on you, you push on them. They pull on you, you pull on them. And all you do is get repetitions at pushing on what is pushing on you and pulling on what is pulling on you. And there is no cultivation because there is no way. There's just the dichotomous you being dichotomous. And the book is intense with the window to that life. Because there's a lot of people, especially in Aikido, that do a kind of Aikido light, a kind of Zen light, a kind of spiritual training light. And at least this author uh, jumped in the deep end. And then at least he is open and brave enough and insightful enough. At least he has enough metacognition that he lets the rest of us look inside and see what's going on. And as I was reading this book, it brought to mind uh, a few things in my own training. Early on, my mentor, and in a way, in a kind of discuss with the Zen light crowd, you know the people that don't take on a practice that think and talk adolescently in their anti-christian anti-religious and not realizing how dichotomous that all is in their anti-speak and thinking in their jargonism kind of shouted out me. Zen is vinegar through the nose. And I'll be honest, I really didn't understand what he was talking about. I knew what he was talking against. I was just fixated with the way his body was shaking as he said it and his fists were clenched. His eyes were bulging. Became like a not a koan in its true sense of the word, but a constant reflection, a north star by which to orient myself, something that coincides with the idea. of it being out of your control, out of your comfort, and so outside of your unaware implementation of dichotomy and the reification of the ego. And so fast forward, a decade or two, I met a Sashin One of my first ones. Very intense, very traditional. This must have been earlier than that. But it's quite different from what Alan Watts and D.T. Suzuki talk about. The kind of Zen the jargonites talk about. It's quite different. It's very bodily. There's no reasoning to it because there's no reasoning that is going to assist you through it. So I'm sitting there, I think it was at the end of the, near the end of the first day, an immense pain comes into my legs. a dichotomy arises between my spirit and my flesh. Between my intention and my physiology. So I use my will and I contest against my body. I'm going to overpower my body. This is how I'm experiencing it in that moment. There are these breaks they would give like every... 45, 60 minutes. So I was going to push for the break. Now for whatever reason, unrelated but perhaps related, another person attending started screaming and fell forward off the cushion. And my body screamed more, and so my will screamed more. And they struggled with each other, each one trying to overpower the other. And her screaming and falling forward proved to me that not only a struggle is taking place, but that a struggle has to take place. So I pushed and I gutted it. And I called upon all the times where I was almost choked out, knocked out, Injured, exhausted, and kept going. And I made it. I made it to the break. I crossed the finish line. But the pain was so great, I'm now nauseous. And my body wants to vomit. But I don't dare vomit on the mat. So I force myself, get up. Don't rely on your body. It's trying to defeat you. You have to remember how to walk. Do not trust what your body is feeling. Put that foot in that space. Move it at this moment. And get to the bathroom. So in a kind of weird way where I'm just falling forward. I make it to the bathroom. The Dai Senpai comes in. Are you okay? And I say, oh yeah, I just have to vomit. And I was ready to have all this sympathy bestowed upon me. And instead he says, oh, that's normal. And then he took off. But don't actually vomit, it passes, almost as if he uttered some sort of incantation to relieve me of the nausea. I pick up my Hakama, I look at my legs, and they're black and blue. Just bruised like I've never seen them bruised before. And I track down my Dai Senpai again, and I go, yeah, look at my legs. Is this... And he goes, that's normal too. So the next sit starts. I get back on the cushion. And you would think, from a physiological point of view, that the bruising would continue. What bruised the legs is still going on, and so the bruising should continue. But it didn't. through some sort of alchemy and for some mysterious reasons. Meaning there's just too many aspects, too many individual parts to keep track of. And there is no motivation to actually track them all. But for some reason, I released the body-mind dichotomy. Perhaps it was his words that's normal. Perhaps it was his lack of sympathy. Perhaps it was the duration. Perhaps it was the futility of the struggle because it wasn't going to stop. Perhaps it's some yogic alignment in the posture, in the incense, in the chants, in the smells and the sounds. In the making sacred of that space, who knows But I became free of the mind body or the flesh spirit dichotomy. Time left. Space left. Beginning and end disappeared. Achieve and not achieve gone. There was just sitting. There wasn't even I was sitting, just sitting. And at the next break, I looked at my legs and all the bruises were gone. Vinegar through the nose. That session was followed by another session a while later. This was the one deeper into my practice. And during the sit, some kids well, I think they were kids. I never saw them. During the session in the later hours of one night, some people were skateboarding and hanging out in the parking lot of where the session was being held. You would think Continue sitting. Just sit. But that's not what happened. Many people became irate, insulted, affronted, challenged. How dare they And they scrambled in the middle of the set, not waiting for the break, trying to get out to go confront them. And in the way that they struggled to get out, in the dichotomy between outside and inside, you could see that there was an aggression to them. It wasn't one person perhaps casually bowing, standing up, walking to the door in walking meditation to go out and ask people if they would mind leaving, moving on, Seeing if they needed anything to help them move on, explaining to them what we were doing. It was people aggressively attempting to get out, but they couldn't because Sensei had locked the doors. To the person with no dichotomy between in and out, the locked doors is irrelevant. Just like to the person who can just sit, the still, static, silent positioning of the body is irrelevant. To the person contesting struggling, abiding in dichotomy, the still, silent posture is torturous. And so those locked doors became very relevant. It was a time when Sensei had left the mat, actually. It wasn't uncommon that he didn't do all of this seshin, all the time, especially the late-night sits. But again, for the non-dichotomous, Sensei's presence and Sensei's absence are indistinguishable So part of me wondered, would they be struggling aggressively to get outside if Sensei was here? So faced with locked doors, for which they had no keys, they started to crawl through these little windows that were really just breezeway windows. They weren't. They were more like dog doggy doors. And to watch the um, the mat empty with people of all kinds of title and rank running amuck aggressively to and fro, locked door here, open window there, go go go. that reminded me of another story. It's the one when the Buddha chose to leave the palace. It's the one where he had enough of a hint of impermanence that he gained through his chariot driver the night before or the day before where he saw old age, sickness, death, poverty. And that was followed by this huge party his parents threw. Food, orgy, dance, drugs, alcohol, beautiful women, beautiful men, costume, jewelry. And everyone passes out and goes to sleep. But he wakes up in the morning and he sees clearly the fakeness of it all, how fraudulent it all was, how it's actually supporting what he saw the other day with his chariot driver i imagine if his parents when the when the, the prince came and said oh i saw death and i saw sickness and they would have said hey hey you know let's just um Let's just have a normal dinner. We're going to hang out. You know, I imagine they would have squeezed probably a year or two more out of him. But they threw that party. And then he saw it in its aftermath. Vomit. In women's hair. Passed out men. their muscles no longer holding their posture and shape, just flabby skin dropping, bloated stomachs, ripped clothing, bodies twisted, heavy breathing, nearly suffocating. the sickness of debauchery. He was able to see through it all. And that was the final straw. So I'm watching these senpai, dai-senpai, struggle to get out. And for me, that was like that ballroom floor. I had to leave. But it stuck with me. And it was called to my mind again as I'm watching this class. People pushing on pushing, pulling on pulling. And in reading this book, Confidential Zen, he goes into it. To the Zen light person, they just have no idea. It's automatic. If you were to go into a Zen monastery, you would reach awakening. If you go into an Aikido school, you're going to learn how to not contest. But it's not true. It's not true because most of us end up in these schools out of contestation, through contestation through the employment and the continuous employment of dichotomy. And what happens instead is the practice is asserted. In the prologue, he says, a weak soul does not have the endurance to resist the flesh for very long. It grows heavy, becomes flesh itself, and the contest ends. This soul becoming flesh is the usurping of the practice. It's what happens. It's what we do. We're not going deep enough, early enough We're not looking at how we got to the dojo in the first place. We're not seeing that rejection, that resistance, that contestation. And so we're not seeing how everything continues to be filtered through those things. And so we can train for decades and still get triggered by skateboarders and still seek to overpower to resist our teachers, to ruin our marriages, to alienate our children. There's something in us not at a conscious level that does not free us This is what I see or hear when the author of the prologue says Within me are the dark immemorial forces of the evil one, human and prehuman. Because I do not mean to subvert my training, that is not my goal. But subversion happens. That energy is human and pre-human. It is mine, but not of mine. To me, this is how I push on push, pull on pull. How I enter into power struggles on and off the mat, in and outside of the dojo. How I do big man Aikido how I battle with my teachers, how I rule over my Kohai. And to use this discourse, this is how I stop following in the bloody tracks of Christ. How I turn from my supreme duty to move beyond myself. To pass through anguish and the snares of the earth. To be willing to sacrifice the great and small joys of the world. To bear the cross willingly. To have all suffering stop with me. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentientcenter.com S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R dot com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.